0: Section 6. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Written by himself, by James Hogg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George was from infancy. Of a stirring, active disposition, and could not endure confinement. And having been of late much restrained in his youthful exercises by this singular persecutor, he grew uneasy under such restraint, and one morning, chancing to awaken very early, he arose to make an excursion to the top of Arthur's seat, to breathe the breeze of the dawning and see the sun arise out of the eastern ocean. The morning was calm and serene, and as he walked down the south back of the cannon gate towards the palace, the haze was so close around him that he could not see the houses on the opposite side of the way. As he passed the Lord Commissioner's house, the guards were in attendance, who cautioned him not to go by the palace as all the gates would be shut and guarded for an hour to come, on which he went by the back of St. Anthony's Gardens and found his way into that little romantic glade adjoining to the saint's chapel and well. He was still involved in a blue haze, like a dense smoke, but yet in the midst of it the respiration was the most refreshing and delicious. The grass and the flowers were loaded with dew, and on taking off his hat to wipe his forehead, he perceived that the black glossy fur of which his chaperon was wrought was all covered with a tissue of the most delicate silver. A fairy web, composed of little spheres, so minute that no eye could discern any of them, yet there they were shining in lovely millions. Afraid of defacing so beautiful and so delicate a garnish, he replaced his hat with the greatest caution and went on his way light of heart as he approached the swire at the head of the dell that little delightful verge from which in one moment the eastern limits and shores of lothian arise on the view as he approached it i say in a little space from the height he beheld to his astonishment A bright halo in the cloud of haze that rose in a semicircle over his head like a pale rainbow. He was struck motionless at the view of the lovely vision, for it so chanced that he had never seen the same appearance before, though common at early morn. But he soon perceived the cause of the phenomenon and that it proceeded from the rays of the sun from a pure, unclouded morning sky, striking upon this dense vapor which refracted them. But the better all the works of nature are understood, the more they will be ever admired. That was a scene that would have entranced the man of science with delight, but which the uninitiated and sordid man would have regarded less than the mole rearing up his hill in silence and in darkness. George did admire this halo of glory, which still grew wider and less defined as he approached the surface of the cloud. But to his utter amazement and supreme delight, he found on reaching the top of Arthur's seat, that this sublunary rainbow, this terrestrial glory, was spread in its most vivid hues beneath his feet still he could not perceive the body of the sun although the light behind him was dazzling but the cloud of haze lying dense in that deep dell that separates the hill from the rocks of salisbury and the dull shadow of the hill mingling with that cloud made the dell a pit of darkness On that shadowy cloud was the lovely rainbow formed, spreading itself on a horizontal plane and having a slight and brilliant shade of all the colors of the heavenly bow, but all of them paler and less defined. But this terrestrial phenomenon of the early morn cannot be better delineated than by the name given of it by the shepherd boys, the little wee ghost of the rainbow. Such was the description of the morning and the wild shades of the hill that George gave to his father and Mr. Adam Gordon that same day on which he had witnessed them, and it is necessary that the reader should comprehend something of their nature to understand what follows. He seated himself on the pinnacle of the rocky precipice, a little within the top of the hill to the westward, and with a light and buoyant heart, viewed the beauties of the morning and inhaled its salubrious breeze here thought he i can converse with nature without disturbance and without being intruded on by any appalling or obnoxious visitor the idea of his brother's dark and malevolent looks coming at that moment across his mind he turned his eyes instinctively to the right to the point where that unwelcome guest was wont to make his appearance. Gracious heaven! What an apparition was there presented to his view! He saw, delineated in the cloud, the shoulders, arms, and features of a human being of the most dreadful aspect. The face was the face of his brother, but dilated to twenty times the natural size. Its dark eyes gleamed on him through the mist, while every furrow of its hideous brow frowned deep as the ravines of the brow of the hill. George started, and his hair stood up in bristles as he gazed on this horrible monster. He saw every feature and every line of the face distinctly as it gazed on him with an intensity that was hardly brookable. Its eyes were fixed on him in the same manner as those of some carnivorous animal fixed on its prey. And yet, there was fear and trembling in these unearthly features, as plainly depicted as murderous malice. The giant apparition seemed sometimes to be cowering down as in terror, so that nothing but his brow and eyes were seen. Still, these never turned one moment from their object. Again it rose imperceptibly up and began to approach with great caution, and as it neared, the dimensions of its form lessened, still continuing, however, far above the natural size. George conceived it to be a spirit. He could conceive it to be nothing else, and he took it for some horrid demon by which he was haunted that had assumed the features of his brother in every lineament, but in taking on itself the human form, had miscalculated dreadfully on the size, and presented itself thus to him in a blown-up, dilated frame of embodied air, exhaled from the caverns of death or the regions of devouring fire. He was further confirmed in the belief that it was a malignant spirit on perceiving that it approached him across the front of a precipice, where there was not footing for thing of mortal frame. Still, what with terror and astonishment, he continued riveted to the spot till it approached, as he deemed, to within two yards of him. And then, perceiving that it was setting itself to make a violent spring on him, he started to his feet and fled distractedly in the opposite direction, keeping his eye cast behind him lest he had been seized in that dangerous place. But the very first bolt that he made in his flight, he came in contact with a real body of flesh and blood, and that with such violence that both went down among some scragged rocks, and George rolled over the other. The being called out, Murder! and rising, fled precipitately. George then perceived that it was his brother, and being confounded between the shadow and the substance, he knew not what he was doing or what he had done. And there being only one natural way of retreat from the brink of the rock, he likewise arose and pursued the affrighted culprit with all his speed towards the top of the hill. Ringham was braying out, Murder! Murder! At which George, being disgusted, and his spirits all in a ferment from some hurried idea of intended harm, the moment he came up with the craven, he seized him rudely by the shoulder and clapped his hand on his mouth. Murder? You beast! said he. What do you mean by roaring out murder in that way? Who the devil is murdering you? Or offering to murder you Ringham forced his mouth from under his brother's hand, and roared with redoubled energy ah, ah murder murder, etc. George had felt resolute to put down this shocking alarm, lest someone might hear it and fly to the spot, or draw inferences widely different from the truth. And perceiving the terror of this elect youth, to be so great that expostulation was vain. He seized him by the mouth and nose with his left hand so strenuously that he sank his fingers into his cheeks. But, the poltroon still attempting to bray out, George gave him such a stunning blow with his fist on the left temple that he crumbled, as it were, to the ground, but more from the effects of terror than those of the blow. His nose, however, again gushed out blood, a system of defence which seemed as natural to him as that resorted to by the race of stinkards. He then raised himself on his knees and hands, and raising up his ghastly face, while the blood streamed over both ears, he besought his life of his brother, in the most abject, whining manner, gaping and blubbering most piteously. Tell me, then, sir, "'said George, resolved to make the most of the wretch's terror. "'Tell me for what purpose it is that you haunt my steps. "'Tell me plainly and instantly, "'else I will throw you from the verge of that precipice.' "'Oh, I I will never do it again. "'I I will never do it again. "'Spare my life, dear good brother. "'Spare my life. "'Sure, I I never did you any hurt.' "'Swear to me, then. By the God that made you, that you will never, henceforth, follow after me to torment me with your hellish threatening looks. Swear that you will never again come into my presence without being invited. Will you take an oath to this effect? Uh, oh, yes, I will, I, I will! But this is not all. You must tell me for what purpose you sought me out here this morning. Uh, oh, brother, for nothing but your good. I had nothing at heart but your unspeakable profit and great and endless good. So then, you indeed knew that I was here. I was told so by a friend, but I did not believe him. At least, I did not know that it was true till I saw you. Tell me this one thing then, Robert, and all shall be forgotten and forgiven. Who was that friend? You don't know him, sir. How then does he know me? I cannot tell. Was he here, present with you today? Yes, he was not far distant. He came to this hill with me. Where then is he now? I I cannot tell. Then, wretch, confess that the devil was that friend who told you I was here, and who came here with you. None else could possibly know of my being here. Ah, how little you know of him. Would you argue that there is neither man nor spirit endowed with so much foresight as to deduce natural conclusions from previous actions and incidents but the devil? Alas, brother! But why should I wonder at such abandoned notions and principles? It was foreordained that you should cherish them, and that they should be the ruin of your soul and body, before the world was framed. Be assured of this, however, that I had no aim of seeking you but your good. Well, Robert, I will believe it. I am disposed to be hasty and passionate. It is a fault in my nature. But I never meant or wished you evil, and God is my witness that I would as soon stretch out my hand to my own life or my father's as to yours. At these words, Ringham uttered a hollow, exulting laugh, put his hands in his pockets and withdrew a space to his accustomed distance. George continued, And now, once and for all, I request that we may exchange forgiveness and that we may part and remain friends. Would such a thing be expedient, think you, or consistent with the glory of God? I doubt it. I can think of nothing that would be more so. Is it not consistent with every precept of the gospel? Come, brother, say that our reconciliation is complete. Uh, Oh, yes, certainly. I tell you, brother, according to the flesh, it is just as complete as the larks is with the adder, no more so, nor ever can. Reconciled, forsooth! To what would I be reconciled? As he said this, he strode indignantly away. From the moment that he heard his life was safe, he assumed his former insolence and revengeful looks, and never were they more dreadful than on parting with his brother that morning on top of the hill. Well, go thy way, said George. Some would despise, but I pity thee. If thou art not a limb of Satan, I never saw one." The sun had now dispelled the vapors, and the morning being lovely beyond description, George sat himself down on the top of the hill and pondered deeply on the unaccountable incident that had befallen to him that morning. He could in no wise comprehend it, but taking it with other previous circumstances, he could not get quit of a conviction that he was haunted by some evil genius in the shape of his brother, as well as by that dark and mysterious wretch himself. In no other way could he account for the apparition he saw that morning on the face of the rock, nor for several sudden appearances of the same being, in places where there was no possibility of any foreknowledge that he himself was to be there, and as little that the same being, if he were flesh and blood like other men, could always start up in the same position with regard to him. He determined, therefore, on reaching home, to relate all that had happened, from beginning to end, to his father, asking his counsel and his assistance, although he knew full well that his father was not the fittest man in the world to solve such a problem. He was now involved in party politics, over head and ears, and moreover, he could never hear the names of either of the ringhams mentioned without getting into a quandary of disgust and anger, and all that he would dine to say of them was to call them by all the opprobrious names he could invent. It turned out, as the young man from the first suggested, Old Doll Castle would listen to nothing concerning them with any patience. George complained that his brother harassed him with his presence at all times and in all places. Old Doll asked why he did not kick the dog out of his presence whenever he felt him disagreeable. George said he seemed to have some demon for a familiar. Doll answered that he did not wonder a bit at that for the young Spark was the third in a direct line who had all been children of adultery. And it was well known that all such were born half-deals themselves, and nothing was more likely than that they should hold intercourse with their fellows. In the same style did he sympathize with all his son's late sufferings and perplexities. In Mr. Adam Gordon, however, George found a friend who entered into all his feelings and had seen and known everything about the matter. He tried to convince him that at all events there could be nothing supernatural in the circumstances, and that the vision he had seen on the rock among the thick mist was the shadow of his brother approaching behind him. George could not swallow this. For he had seen his own shadow on the cloud, and instead of approaching to aught like his own figure, he perceived nothing but a halo of glory round a point of the cloud that was whiter and purer than the rest. Gordon said, if he would go with him to a mountain of his father's, which he named in Aberdeenshire, he would show him a giant spirit of the same dimensions any morning at the rising of the sun, provided he shone on that spot. This statement excited George's curiosity exceedingly, and being disgusted with some things about Edinburgh and glad to get out of the way, he consented to go with Gordon to the Highlands for a space. The day was accordingly set for their departure, the old Laird's assent obtained and the two young Sparks parted in a state of great impatience for their excursion. End of Section 6